Today we're here with Paul Jay, who is a journalist, filmmaker, founder, and host of The Analysis, a news outlet. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us today, Paul. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Our pleasure. Uh, now, as you might have heard, uh, 35 Republicans in U.S. Congress had voted uh, to support the legislation that would uh, establish an independent commission to investigate the January, uh, recent January insurrection uh, at the U.S. at U.S. Capitol Hill. If you can just tell us from your perspective about uh, the significant shift in thinking um, when we think about how Republicans came together to vote on behalf of this bill and what this means for U.S. policy politics, especially uh, with such race-based issues when we see such support from Republicans in U.S. Congress. So uh, you're talking about the 35 Republicans that voted for a bill to establish the January 6th commission. Well, I, I, it, it, there's kind of two big issues here. One is the split in the Republican Party uh, that's most reflected in the removal of uh, Liz Cheney uh, from leadership of the House. Um, and, and that split goes back, I think, to, uh, well, it's from the very emergence of Trump. Uh, Trump ran, in, to some extent, uh, in the Republican primaries in 2016 against the leadership of the Republican Party. Uh, of course, he, he represented his own section of uh, billionaires and, and his own alliances within the American elites. Um, but primarily a, a billionaire hedge fund guy named Robert Mercer and uh, Sheldon Adelson, uh, the casino uh, billionaire who died a little while ago, but who was also very close for a long time to Netanyahu in Israel. Um, but, but Trump ran a campaign and uh, once he got elected, and especially once he selected Trump, uh, Pence as his vice president, and Pence is a guy who more or less represented and still does, I think, the Koch brothers, as the Pompeo. Uh, that that he they made a kind of an alliance. Uh, the uh, the section of the elites that hated Trump right from the beginning, and you have to remember, even people like Lindsey Graham hated Trump from the beginning. But once he was elected, and once they saw a, a real coalescing of what amounts to a kind of fascist movement of sorts around Trump. Uh, and I'm when I say talk about Trump supporters, I certainly do not mean the vast majority of people that vote for Trump are, you know, fascist or even think they're voting for a fascist. But there's a core uh, in that. Uh, and, and, and part of that core is a far right religious uh, evangelical, both uh, evangelical and far right Catholic. Uh, and 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 as we get closer to talking about January 6th, they, they're very strong in the military. There are actually uh, several Opus Dei far-right Catholics in the Supreme Court. So that this, this kind of coalescing around a section of the billionaires, starting with this Mercer Edelman, but later the Koch brothers, uh, certainly have a certain sway in it. I don't know that the Kochs ever loved Trump, but that's the whole point. I think most of the elites, including in the financial sector, many of whom are traditionally Democrats, uh, started to go along with Trump because they got whatever they wanted out of Trump uh, in the financial sector, in the uh, fossil fuel sector, uh, certainly the military industrial complex. Trump gave them everything they wanted. So it honestly, excuse my language, didn't matter how batshit crazy Trump became and was clearly was, 
uh, he had opened up the piggy bank of the U.S. Treasury and uh, and deregulation, and so they they nurtured the megalomania of this guy. Uh, they 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 knew they were dealing with a nutcase, but he was their nutcase as long as he was passing legislation with an enormous tax cuts and such. Uh, if you remember, not long after he was elected, he said he didn't want to have as many military interventions. I'm not sure. I, I think he always had his target set on Iran. But uh, but he said, don't worry, arms manufacturers, you're going to get lots of money. And of course they did. He passed one of the biggest arms budgets in history. At any rate, so the, the preponderance of the elites and, and of the elites, the financial elites are the most powerful because they kind of own everything. Uh, they they were okay with him, and, but as the election got clo uh, came, and you know they were they could have lived with a second term of Trump, except his irrationality in dealing with the pandemic. It shook the elites that that he couldn't. He was so insane about the pandemic uh, that they really decided that they'd had enough of this guy. Um, still, I think without the pandemic, Trump might well have won that election. And when he got 74 million votes, uh, 75, by whatever it was, uh, it shook them that he got so many votes even after the pandemic. But still, he lost. Uh, they assumed there'd be a, a relatively orderly transition to Biden. Uh, although the plot not to transition to Biden had started much earlier. Steve Bannon had gone on the Tucker Carlson show in mid-September and essentially already announced Stop the Steal before there ever was an election, before they could even say there was a steal, they already had a stop the steal going. So they knew they were gonna lose, the polling had made it clear. And so they, were, they had prepared a couple of months ahead of time to create this conditions for saying the vote was a fraud. And I think th there's several very important questions that need to be answered. And I don't know whether this commission's ever gonna come into being. I've been listening to the hearings from different committees and no one's asked the real questions. So I don't know if there even was, is a commission whether it would actually do anything because mm -hmm. the real questions are, to what extent was there really a coup in place prior to January 6th? Was January 6th the final act mm -hmm. of a coup? Uh, now, for example, I, I saw an NBC interview recently with Liz Cheney, long interview. They never asked Liz Cheney, why did you and your father, Dick Cheney, organize a letter from 10 former secretaries of defense, essentially warning the military to stay out of the elections and, and stay out of determining who's going to be in the White House? I mean, what, what made you, Liz Cheney, think such a letter was necessary? They didn't ask her that. Uh, General Stavridis, who was the former Supreme Commander of uh, NATO, writes an op-ed article in Time magazine supporting the letter of the 10 secretaries, saying that the uh, acting Secretary of Defense, Miller, doesn't have the backbone to stand up to a temperamental president. Like the very serious people really think it's possible that Trump, and this was publicly said by uh, his friend, General Flynn, who called for a coup, called for the military to start uh, organize a new election. Uh, they were taking those threats seriously. There, uh, In Stavridis's article, 
in in time. He says that there's they they've been aware. They meaning he and these secretaries of defense and others were aware that there were real conversations taking place in the White House about how and whether to stage a coup. Then on January the 4th, uh, the Financial Times in an edit uh, editorial says a coup is in progress. So since January 6th, how come we don't hear about any of this? So I'm wondering, you know, that being said, and with considering the January 6th riot being such a landmark event in the United States, coupled with, for example, the recent George Floyd murder, um, a lot of anti-racism experts right now have been calling for a systemic change for a long time, but, but specifically after such paramount events in U.S. politics. From your perspective, um, covering these events and looking into them uh, quite deeply in your career, how hopeful are you that stru such structural proposals such as this bill uh, might be effective uh, either in the short term or in the long run? Well, listen, any small reform that makes life more livable for people that are being attacked by police on a daily basis. Uh, the DOJ report of the Baltimore Police Department about four years ago, I guess it is now, after the murder of Freddie Gray, uh, the DOJ, I'm sorry, I forget her name, but the woman that led it is actually now an assistant attorney general uh, Biden appointment. Uh, she said that the constitutional rights of Baltimore citizens, citizens in Baltimore, are being violated every day. So any small change that mitigates the uh, terror, terrorizing of poor and working class people in major cities across the country, uh, particularly African-Americans, but also uh, Latinx people, but also include poor whites, because when you look at the actual numbers of actual gross numbers of people that get killed by police, of course, there's a lot more white people, but there's also more numerically white people that get killed by police. And I, most of them, I believe, are, are poor. Uh, but without question, African-Americans disproportionately uh, are killed by police every single day. So any reform, even how modest, is a good thing. Now, if you're asking me whether some small reforms of the policing will get rid of systemic racism or whether any legislation's being talked about, well, I think the answer to that's no. And the, the reason is, is the un, there's two fundamental reasons, I think, why there's systemic racism. Uh, first and foremost is because the racism is profitable. What I mean by that is when you want to exploit people as, as cheap labor, uh, dehumanizing them makes it easier to do so. So the like, in, I'll go back to Baltimore because I lived there for a number of years. Uh, you had people working in some of the big institutions like Johns Hopkins Hospital, you know, after 14 years cleaning surgical rooms and making 12, $13 an hour. Uh, why are people, you know, actually risking their health because they're cleaning up uh, HIV and other kinds of blood issues, and uh, you know, especially with COVID? Um, why? Because they're desperate for jobs. And the main thing to understand is that the, the the biggest demand, if you go talk to people, poor people, poor working people, or unemployed people in in American cities, and ask what they want, I I've done a lot of that, 
and that first answer is always jobs. People want employment, and 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 so the desperation for jobs, that big pool of unemployed labor, is very profitable because it allows, you know, it's a, it's a not just low wages paid to them, but it's also a drag on wages right across the board. Number two, in the culture, you know, this uh, United States is born really as a slave society. And the, the culture of white privilege, the culture of uh, workers saying to themselves, like, just to give you an example, in the Civil War, it's always struck me, why would poor white farmers and, and poor workers go fight for the Confederacy and die to defend the slave system when they didn't benefit from it? Most of the poor white farmers didn't have slaves. If anything, the, the slave labor was a, 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 competi a competitor to their labor. So in fact, the slave system was actually really opposed to them, but they went out and not just supported slavery. Uh, they actually died for it on the battlefield. Well, because the cultural forces were very strong in, in, the, in kind of internalizing this identity. Well, at least I'm white. You know, that, that sort of in, an internalized as bad as my life might be. At least I'm, I'm, I have some, I'm white and it gives some very false consciousness, false sense mm -hmm. of, 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 a, of, of a privilege. And that carries on through the culture and is deliberately nourished, nurtured uh, for decades and decades. And so, so the, it has to be fought at the cultural level. And, and I would say a lot of the protests that have taken place, the Black Lives Matter kind of act activism, uh, it's had some positive effect, and and it is making larger sections of the society uh, aware of of the extent of systemic racism. But so, but if the eco but this, but if they don't if but if the economic side of it isn't dealt with, if 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 the uh, this this need of the system for for the super exploited cheap labor isn't dealt with, and that's dealt with by significantly raising the minimum wage. Uh, serious investment in the inner cities, raising the, the level of, uh, of uh, life for, for people who, uh, I mean, why is there such, you know, it's, it's it not, you can't argue with the fact there's a lot of crime in areas where there's a lot of poverty. Well, you don't deal with the crime through policing, you deal with it by alleviating the poverty. Thank you so much, Paul Jay, for being here with us today. Thanks very much.